Hi there, I'm Leah. And I'm Andrew. Welcome to Apologetics Simplified, where we seek to foster discipleship and evangelism through apologetics and theology. To keep up with everything we're doing, you can subscribe and also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also contact us at apologeticsimplified at gmail.com. Welcome back to Apologetic Simplified. We are glad that you have tuned in today and that you're listening along with us. Very grateful to have you here. Oh, yes. We certainly are glad to have you listening with us. We don't say that sarcastically. It's just that we record this in the morning, and so when we're tired, everything sounds sarcastic. We're so glad you're here, taking time out of your very busy day to listen to us talk about stuff. Um, yeah, and it can be hard to listen to podcasts in this current climate because, at least for me, I used to listen to podcasts in the car and now I don't go much of anywhere. So if you are listening, we're super grateful. I'm curious where you listen to podcasts. You should send us a message or leave us a comment on social media telling us where you like to listen to podcasts. Is it in your car? Is it on a walk? Is it while you do laundry? We want to know. Where do you listen to podcasts? So. Do you listen here or there? Do you listen anywhere? Do you listen in a box? Do you listen with a fox? If you listen with a fox, I need a picture. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Um, we're going to be talking about tough questions in the Bible and from church history. And many of these questions came directly from our listeners and from people on my Facebook page. Because I often poll people um, on my personal Facebook page for questions because because it's easy and I can. So that's where these questions, most of them came from. And even if they didn't come from there, I have seen them elsewhere on the internet. So why did God give people choices? This came from a listener on Instagram. He asks, since babies can go to heaven before making a decision, why didn't God create us all in heaven before making a decision? This way, nobody would have went to hell. This question really bothers me, and I don't know how to answer it. So thank you. This is from Darius. Thank you for your question. Um, and as I told you in the DM, that's a really, um, it's a great question, and it's too long for us to really answer in a in a little text message, basically, which is what these DMs are. So we're going to be addressing it as our first question today on this episode. What I understand this question boiling down to is why did God give us choice at all? If God knew, because he's omniscient, which means he's all-knowing, if God knew that humanity was going to choose rebellion, choose sin over obedience to God, then why did God give us a choice at all? Why put us in a place where we could sin at all? Why not just skip straight to the perfection heaven and um, not have to go through this where people go to hell because they chose rebellion? And this is a really good question, and I think it sets up a lot of our other questions we're going to be addressing today, so I want to go ahead and tackle it first. Let's imagine that God had done this. Let's say God didn't give anyone a choice. You don't have the option to sin. There was no option to eat the forbidden fruit, as it were. You don't have a choice. You're just with God, and you're with the angels forever, and everything's perfect. My question is, is a place where you don't have the choice to love God uh, is that actually love? And I'm going to go with no. I think love requires choice. I think that in order to love, you have to have the choice about whether to love or not. I don't think anyone wants to be forced into loving somebody. You have to have the choice. Heck, even family. You know, I have the choice to love Andrew as my brother and my parents. 
even though I was, you know, we were both born into this family and loving your siblings and your parents is typically a normal thing. Um, although sometimes uh, that's not something that happens and there's hatred and unlove in families. But that's a pretty normal thing people expect is that you'll love your family members. But still, I do have the choice. I have the choice to love. And I think that God wanted us to really love him. I don't think God wanted to create little robots who just did whatever he said. I think God really did want us to love him. We even see this like in robots and like sci-fi films. We talked about the new series Picard on CBS. And there's this whole dilemma with data throughout not just that one uh, season, but all the other seasons he was in. And they all run together in my head. Which series was it? The Next Generation. The Next Generation. And he wants, he's a android. And so he looks human, but he's a computer, but he wants to be human. And if I remember correctly, that does involve him wanting to have the ability to really choose, right? Yeah, there, there's a little bit of that. So much of the next generation is him learning what it means to be human. And there's really great interactions with some of the other crew members where they're teaching him like more than just, for lack of a better word, more than just like the data of how <laughs> humans act. Um it's actually a really amusing episode where he's just developed a uh, small talk protocol. <laughs> and then they put him with this visiting officer who's one of those people who just won't shut up. And then that keeps him busy for a while. But yeah, and then like there's in the movies, there's big uh, steps forward where he gets uh, the emotion chip. And then, spoiler alert, he does end up doing what you know some people would consider to be the most human act ever, and sacrificing himself for others. Mm-hmm. Which was a choice. And so because of that choice that he had, like he chose to love those people, even though he was a robot. So even in our sci-fi, we want robots to have choice. And so how much more does our God who created us as as living beings want us to have choice? And of course, this I find the answer to this question fairly easy personally because it makes sense to me that God would want us to be able to choose to love him. But then the consequences of that answer are really challenging. It's not as straightforward because then we do see people who continue to choose rebellion, who even when presented with the gospel, there are people who say, yeah, this is really convincing, but I know if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to change and I don't want to. Sometimes people say that. And while that might be intellectually honest, uh, and I appreciate that, it's, it's hard because we want people to choose God. We want people to choose to love him. And we don't like the concept of hell. And we did a few episodes on hell a few months ago, but just to touch on that again briefly, C.S. Lewis says, um, and I believe Mere Christianity and The Great Divorce. I know at least in The Great Divorce, which is a book basically where he's wondering what heaven and hell will be like. He kind of uses a purgatory framework in this fictional work to imagine what heaven and hell might be like. It's a really interesting read. It's not him saying what the afterlife is actually like, but just kind of him pondering through fiction. And in The Great Divorce, he says that the Christian says to God, thy will be done. And and God says, thy will be done to the human. It's like, okay, if you don't want to choose me, that's fine. That's your choice. And so really what C.S. Lewis is getting at there is that it's less about God sending people to hell, but people choose that themselves. If they don't want to have a relationship with God, God allows them to make that choice. um, And then they are faced with hell. So why didn't God create us in heaven? I think why God allowed the possibility of sin and evil was so that we could choose to really love God. We aren't just 
robots who are just mindlessly doing what we're told. We can really, really choose him. And I think that God wanted that for us. Um, and a little side note here is typically the under the biblical understanding of what happened to the angels was that they too were created perfect, but still we have Lucifer and a third of the angels which followed him and rebelled against God and they were in heaven. And so if we have these creatures who interacted directly with God and still some of them chose rebellion, I think that even if we had ended up in heaven, somehow um, the the opportunity for sin would would still be there because again God wants us to really be able to choose. So as we move on with some more of these questions, we're going to be wrestling with some bad interpretations of scripture with some things that people did wrong throughout church history and I think this is actually a really helpful framework to remember that God did give us humanity the ability to choose and sometimes we still choose wrong, right? We all still have a sin nature. And so that feeds into some of this bad stuff. God allowed us the ability to choose, but that doesn't mean that God is any less good, even when humanity, his creation, chooses evil and wrong. And even when his church doesn't do what's right, it doesn't mean that God isn't good. And it also doesn't mean that the message of scripture isn't true and good as God intended it to be. When humans try to live it out, they're going to mess it up because we're we're sinful and that's just the state that we're living in right now. But it doesn't mean that what God intended and what God is doing in scripture is any less good or true. So we're going to dive into those questions in just a moment, right after our first segment break. Sayeth what? Sayeth what? On this week's Sayeth what? I have a question. Why is everyone obsessed with movies that are animated to look like Legos. I don't understand. We have, uh, I watched, I can't remember if it was a movie or a shorter TV show, but I watched a um, Lego Frozen story, which I don't know why I did because it was kind of dumb, but I watched it. And then um, we have Lego, we have the Lego movie, several of them. Um, I'm scrolling through Wikipedia, which is obviously the best um, source for news. Uh, we have a Lego Batman, Lego Friends. Girls for Life, Lego DC comic, Lego Scooby Doo. We have so we have Lego Star Wars stuff. Like, what is the obsession with not? And I know Andrew and I were talking about stop motion kind of stuff, which we can describe in a second. But I don't understand the obsession with making animated movies that look like Legos. Like, what is the appeal? I think a lot of it might have just been they realized it caught on to people. Like, if you think of the video games, the first one was Lego Star Wars. Uh, this might be false, but I heard that they kind of made it as a joke, and then it became hugely popular. So I kind of feel like that might have started it. And the, and the Lego games are awesome. Lego Star Wars, Lego Batman's great because you can like grab the bad guys and throw them. Uh, I always like that one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think Star Wars has been kind of the big ones with Legos. They've had a lot of non-canon mind you uh star wars lego adventures and they're actually got another one coming out soon uh you may be familiar with the infamous star wars holiday special where um the crew of the millennium falcon is going to visit Chewbacca's family celebrate life day and there's like imperial interference and boba fett's there and Mark Hamill had just had his car accident so the one scene he was in he had a ton of makeup on but anyway oh gosh 
And yeah, it was, it was terrible. But they are now making the Lego Star Wars holiday special, which is probably a good move if they're wanting to do something silly like that. Uh, just make them Legos. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Andrew was telling me before that um, sometimes they'll do, like, stop motion. Not these people, but other people will do, like, stop motion films, which is, like, means you take a bunch of different pictures of the Legos in different positions and put them all together, and it looks like a movie. Yeah, there's tons uh, of these on YouTube. They're called uh, Brick Films. where people, Yeah, they do stop motion. What's cool is... Like the official Lego movies, like the Lego movie, the Lego Batman movie, and the Lego movie 2, the second part, were animated to look like those brick films, which was really neat. Like even to the extent, like there's this scene in the first Lego movie where they're in an ocean and the ocean is completely made out of Lego bricks uh, with like the colors changing and shapes like doing all the way. It's really cool. Uh, yeah. See, I think that whole like brick film, you thought it was brick films? That's what I think called. that's what they call them. Uh, that's really cool, and that takes a lot of dedication, like, and a lot of time. It's pretty neat. So that stuff's cool. But, yeah, that's my say with what this week. I just, I don't understand the appeal of the Legos, but then again, we did used to play the Lego Star Wars game a yeah. lot. So that's maybe maybe I do get it. <laughs> maybe I get it in my heart, but not in my head. Oh. Oh, man, just made it deep. Deep. Well, cool. Thanks for listening. Well, That's been Sayeth yep. What. Now yep. we return to the regularly scheduled programming. Sayeth What. And we are back and we're going to be diving into some of these questions. So does the Bible justify slavery? And namely, how is the church supposed to be a good thing if they use the Bible to justify slavery, to justify oppression of our African brothers and sisters? How can we possibly think that um, the church is trustworthy and good after these kinds of things? So we're going to look at how early America abused the Bible to justify slavery. And we're also going to use this as an opportunity to talk about how we should be interpreting the Bible as people who are imperfect. And it's like, what are we supposed to do with this if it can be used to justify bad things? So I'm going to read a quote. Um, this came from... The Washington Post from an article entitled, The Bible was used to justify slavery, then Africans made it their plan to freedom. And this is a quote from Yolanda Pierce, who is the dean of the Divinity School at Howard University. Yolanda said, Christianity was pro-slavery. So much of early American Christian identity is predicated on a pro-slavery theology. From the naming of the slave ships to who sponsored some of these journeys, including some churches, to the fact that so many of early American religious rhetoric is deeply intertwined with slaveholding, it is pro-slavery. So our question is, is Christianity really pro-slavery? Um, is the Bible really pro-slavery? And so to look at this question, we're going to use the same exact tactic we used last week to talk about what the scripture has to say about women. Um, we're going to do a much briefer version, but it's the same briefer. Is that a word? I think so. Much more brief. Sure. Um, but it's the same general concept um, where we're going to look at the whole of Scripture. So we do see, well, first of all, like we did last week, going back to Genesis 1, man and woman were equal. And that all by itself says that all of humanity is equal. 
So if you're a human, you're equal to your other humans. Um, But then we do in the law see passages talking about slavery. We see people choosing to enter into slavery um, or instead of killing everybody in a nation, um, choosing to make them their slaves. And when we get to the New Testament, we have passages that talk about how slaves and masters should interact. Last week, we talked about Ephesians 5 with husbands and wives. Then you have a passage about children and parents. And then you have slaves obey your earthly masters. This is Ephesians 6, 5. Uh, And I'm reading from the NIV. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each of each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slaves or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So it's challenging because we don't like seeing that the Apostle Paul taught about how slaves and masters should interact instead of saying, hey, quit with the whole slavery thing. But this passage has been used to justify slavery to say, well, look, right here, it's Talking about husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters must have the same, um, it must be fine in, in society. Again, going back to what we talked about last week, where we said that the beginning of Ephesians 5 was talking about Christian submission to each other. And I believe that the rest of Ephesians 5 and then in Ephesians 6 through verse 9, which is what I just read, is examples of how we should be submitting to each other in Christian love. So it's still challenging. We're saying, okay, Paul, are you justifying slavery here? But then again, we're looking at the whole of scripture. What does the whole of scripture have to say about slavery? And then we get to the book of Philemon. It's all of one chapter, 25 verses in total. And this is a letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, who he is called a dear friend and fellow worker trying to convince him that his slave, who is now returning to him, he had run away, named Onesimus, that he should, at the very least, not punish Onesimus for running away. And really, at most, what Paul wants him to do is to release Onesimus because they are brothers and sisters in Christ, and they should not be in this master-slave relationship because they're equal. So I'm going to read verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in change for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. So this whole letter, and I love when Paul is like, I could make you do this because I'm really important in the church. It's basically what he said. But I I want you to make a choice. There we get choice again, to, to set him free 
um, and for him to no longer be a slave, but be a brother. So when we look at the whole of scripture and we see what God is doing in his plan of redemption from Genesis to, in this case, Philemon, but really through Revelation, we see that we're coming back to this equality we had in Genesis 1.27. So does scripture talk about slavery? Yes but I do not believe it is God's heart for there to be slave and master relationships, especially not in the church, especially not in the church. That should not be a thing. It's reminding me so much of the story of John Newton, the preacher and hymn writer uh, who wrote Amazing Grace. And if you're not familiar with this story, he worked on a, um, a slave ship. I think there was a shipwreck at some point. And through this situation, he became a Christian. And in that, he was so convicted that what he was doing was wrong, that slavery is not consistent with the Bible, with Scripture, and that he actually became a strong opponent of slavery and encouraged others who went on to make really good uh, legal changes in you know, the system that so supported slavery. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good example. So along with this, we have a question of what does it mean then to interpret Scripture? Is scripture just whatever you want it to be? Um, there's a quote from the late Rachel Held Evans here that I'm going to read for you guys. Um, this was also submitted by a Facebook friend, uh, Janelle Wood, actually. We were on her podcast recently. Rachel Held Evans said, If you're looking for verses with which to support slavery, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. And she keeps going, keeps going, says, If you're looking for an outdated, irrelevant ancient text, you will find it. If you're looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. This is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not, what does it say, but what am I looking for? I suspect Jesus knew this when he said, Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. If you want to do violence in this world, you'll always find the weapons. If you want to heal, you will always find the balm. I like what she's trying to say here um, of some honest, what I believe she's trying to say of having some honesty when you're coming to the text of what am I hoping this is going to say. Uh, but one thing I struggle with is it seems like, and I have not read the full context of this, which as we've talked about before is important. I have, So I don't know entirely where she was going with it, but from this little clip I have here, what I struggle with is to some degree, it seems like, well, scriptures are going to give you whatever answers you're looking for. Uh, and so it almost makes coming to scripture like a wishy-washy thing of like, well, what am I going to find here? It depends on what I'm looking for. But I think that this more should serve as a reminder that we need to check, what am I looking for? What am I hoping to find here? And check that and say, okay, it's good that I am aware and self-aware that I am looking for this in the text. Now that I know that, I'm going to put it down and I'm going to come to the text. Again, not just one passage, but all of scripture and say, what does the Bible really have to say about this thing? And try to let it speak to you through the context of its day, through the context of the book, of that author. And so I think this should more serve as a warning to us to say, I can make the Bible say anything I want it to say because I am a fallen human being. Uh, and this is one of the consequences of the fact that I do have choice. So I know I can make it say whatever I want it to say, but that doesn't mean what I want it to say is true. Um, and so I'm going to do my everything in my power, learn how to study scripture well so that I'm not reading it in a way that's going to lead people astray or is going to be untruthful, but I'm going to do my best to read it in a way that is truthful. So is the Bible pro-slavery? I don't believe so. 
even though slavery is talked about, I do not believe it's pro-slavery. And sure, the Bible can mean whatever you want it to mean, but that's still a choice you are making. Um, we need to check that, out, check it, say, okay, check it at the door and move on with our scripture. Knowing that we have that bias in mind um, well, is actually a really helpful thing to do. But then say, what does the whole of scripture have to say about this thing? And be willing to go wherever scripture leads. Andrew said something profound last week, which is going to, uh, well, I guess by the time this post, it'll have already shown up on social media about um, don't come to the scriptures to validate a particular thought or feeling. Let it speak to you or something like that. It was good. Do your best to check that at the door. Well, we're not going to do it perfectly, but being a little more self-aware, I think, will be helpful to these incorrect <laughs> interpretations of scripture. Our next question is, how is the church good if the crusades happened? Well, I guess something I might challenge there, kind of in the heart of the question is the idea of the church being good. And the, the church is the community of believers. We are God's hands and feet in the world. But it is made up of humans. And uh, something we believe you know, we are sinful. We are fallen. We are not exactly what you might call good. And sometimes what we do, even the things we do in the name of God, in the name of the church, can be bad. And that can be reflect our sin nature. So we, we see these examples, like the Crusades, which a lot of times were more, more political than spiritual. And we're allowing, we're allowing our sin and our earthly desires, our earthly feelings to, I guess, overcome or be more prevalent than the truth of Scripture, the truth we believe. And a lot of times that results in the church having a rather lousy witness as we do some very bad things. And that is what people see. And I think that's something for all of us that we need to be aware of, that people know we're Christians. We are in that associating ourselves with Christ. So what kind of witness are we giving to the people around us? Because the world is watching. We talked about a little while ago that Stephen Curtis Chapman rap song, uh, Gotta Be True. <laughs> so, so much in there is the idea, of it's gotta be true if they'll believe it at all. So yeah, we need to be authentic. And yeah, we're not going to be perfect, but we shouldn't use that as an excuse to stop trying. I think so much there's this striving in our faith where we need to be trying to get better and better and being a better witness, being better examples, being his hands and feet, not just people as part of an institution with our own agenda. The only agenda that we should be pushing is God's. And so much in studying scripture is figuring out what that agenda is. And if it's real scripture study and it's not just us trying to validate uh, our own feelings, our ideas might change, and you need to be need to be open to that. So, but you know, we see these instances of the church doing bad things in history. Remember, that is as a result of the sinful people that make up the church. And remember, these are the same sinful people that Jesus died for. I remember I saw uh, one of my friends on Facebook has put a few posts out, just. Simple sayings like, Jesus washed Judas's feet too. And Jesus died for the Pharisees as well. I think so much when we see these bad things, yes, remember that is not what the church should be doing. 
but also remember the journey and maybe there's something going on that God still loves these people. That doesn't mean we shouldn't call them out. That doesn't mean we shouldn't condemn their actions, but we need to remember the love that he has for all people, even people who do really lousy things. So then uh, another question regards like, how is Jesus the fulfillment of the law? You know, there's some laws in the Old Testament that seem really strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that's often quoted is uh, Leviticus 19.19, 19, which is, Keep my decrees. Do not make different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. I don't know about you. I have a lot of clothing that's like blend of cotton and polyester. Am I am I breaking God's law? Well, that's the question that you know a lot of people have, and skeptics or people who are, I won't even say skeptics, people who are against scripture will often bring this up to criticize the Old Testament. But something we need to remember is what we talked about a whole lot last week, and that is context. So when you look at chapter 19 of Leviticus as a whole, it's a whole lot of rules, a lot of regulations that seem very specific. So we see this law, and it seems really strange. But then the question is, was it strange for the culture at the time it was written? And like, do we even know that culture? So what are some possible explanations for this? Well, one, um, all three things listed here seem to indicate an idea of purity. So things like these rules could reinforce the idea of purity among the Israelites. Because God set them apart from the other nations. They were supposed to be different. And just as we've been saying, uh, it was written for specific people. As uh, Leah said last week, God was working in a particular time with a particular people for a particular purpose. So that's something we need to remember when reading these. But then also just an understanding of the types of law in the Old Testament. There's three basic types. Uh, There's civil law, ceremonial law, and moral law. Civil law is the law is unique to the governing of the theocracy of Israel that we read about in the Old Testament. The ceremonial law is unique to the practice of Judaism. That's things like the dietary laws, the sacrifices, uh, circumcision, things along those lines. And there's moral law, which is the laws of right and wrong. And it's believed that in Christianity, with a lot of the civil law and ceremonial law, that is not applicable to us because we are not the Jews in that nation of Israel. And there's that verse in Acts where Peter has the vision of the sheet being lowered and God says, kill and eat. And through this, I love it when God says, do not call that which I have made clean, unclean, or something along those lines. It was the idea that the message is now, this is for the Gentiles as well. This is not just for the Jews. Uh, Mm -hmm. Moral law is the thing that has not changed. Right and wrong are still right and wrong. But there's some, some details that are a little different. Our dad actually has a great metaphor for understanding the Old Testament law with a New Testament perspective. He asked the question, of what do Pink Floyd, Leviticus, and Jesus Christ have to do with each other? Which can uh, sometimes get some very amusing answers. But um, I'll, I'll just go ahead and tell you. But So let's start with Pink Floyd. The part they contribute is the album cover for Dark Side of the Moon, which uh, is a picture of white light shining into a prism and then being refracted into a rainbow. So if we understand it through a biblical perspective, 
We can think of the white light as the Old Testament law, Jesus as the prism, and then through the prism of Jesus, that law is transformed. I may use uh, some Old Testament laws for examples. Ten Commandments are great examples. Uh, So we see that when the light passes through, there's some things that are unchanged. Uh, That includes things like the first and third commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's the same. Nothing's changed there. Um, There's some that are intensified. In the case of Ten Commandments, it's actually most of them. It's the second and then the fifth through tenth. You know, uh, six and seven, there's you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. But then Jesus came down and said, you know, if you have these thoughts of hate towards someone, you've murdered them in your heart. If you look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. That's a little more intense than maybe what was originally said. Some are transformed. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The Jews observe a Sabbath on Saturday. The seventh day of creation is when God rested. That's been transformed in our time where most Christians observe the Sabbath on Sunday, leaving the three days since the death. That's a good time to do it. There's also some flexibility. Uh, A lot of people in ministry, myself included, Sunday is not their Sabbath. But so much is the importance of that principle of having a Sabbath when it falls is a little less important. And then there's some that are refracted beyond recognition, and that's things like circumcision, the food laws, and animal sacrifices. And that's just a reminder that what God was telling Peter, this isn't just about the Jews. This is about everyone. And those laws that were specific to those people, specific in that time, is not be taken as universal to all people, everyone that is involved in this plan. So then just a couple words that... Uh, Jesus said about the law, this is from Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I love that the idea that this is stuff, it's not said and done, it's still going on. And then how does Jesus summarize the law? Matthew twenty two thirty six through 40. When he was asked the greatest commandment, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Or as Leah summarized it a few weeks ago, Love the Lord your God with all your stuff. <laughs> so this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. I think it's interesting. You have all these laws, some of them that seem really obscure, some of them that are very good and very applicable to us today. But what Jesus says is the most important thing is love. And everything else branches off of that. Uh, Just one final quote for this section that I really like. Um, It's from William Lane Craig. He said, If God exists and has revealed himself decisively in Jesus of Nazareth, then Christianity is true, and the rest is working out the details. Good stuff. So those details can still be hard sometimes, and it's okay and good for us to wrestle with them. Um, But keeping that perspective of like, if Jesus is who he said he was, like everything else falls into place, even if we don't quite know how. Just diving into those details a little bit uh, before we completely move off of this subject. Some of those details that are hard are the verses that are like, if this person does this thing or this thing or this thing, then they die. Yeah, I think there's one like, if a child curses their parent, kill the child. Uh, yeah. Another thing, there's no record of anyone actually doing that. 
That's good. Um, and so we can shake, we can, we can scratch our head at those. And um, I'm trying to think of what that would fit into. That would probably fit into the, not the moral, but the um, the ceremonial. Probably, the uh, Yeah, civil is like governmental laws. So it'd probably be that one yeah. then. And so that was just their um, law in that time. And again, this was... Um, it wasn't the same. It has some really interesting differences, but it's comparable to other ancient Near Eastern laws. And so we're kind of fitting in there and we're still like, God, what? what? Um, but it is, we're, it makes a little more sense when we look at it in context of the day rather than in our 21st century context. And then another thing we look at in the Bible and we say, wait, wait, why was this okay then? And why is it not okay now? For instance, um, why was polygamy okay? And in Genesis 4, I think his name was Lemuel, was the first man to have more than one wife recorded in scripture. And then we have King David, who's a man after God's own heart, and he has a bunch of wives. And goodness gracious, then we have Solomon, and he's got like a million. Um, which I don't know how he keeps track of all those. Um, so why was polygamy okay in the Old Testament? But now the church is like, uh, this is this is something I have this came to me. Um, but I have heard this. If the Bible allows polygamy in the Old Testament, then why is it that the church has this whole like nuclear family thing that they're stuck on of um, husband, wife, two and a half kids or whatever? Um, this is not the average number of children a family has. Um, and that's the only way that sex and marriage can happen when we see polygamy in the Old Testament. So how can the church possibly say that they have some kind of moral monopoly on sex and marriage. Well, like we said last week, uh, God allows a lot of stuff in scripture. And this week, actually, God allows a lot of stuff in scripture um, that we would not say is God's plan, but God's allowing it for a particular reason. Because again, God was trying to, not trying, succeeding, to bring about the savior of the universe to redeem not just one culture or one family or one whatever, but the whole world. And so we see God allowing things that aren't actually okay morally, such as polygamy. And so we can't really say, well, if God allowed that one sinful thing, then how can the church say that this is the only way sex and marriage can happen? We're kind of comparing apples and oranges here because we're saying, let's compare this sinful way that sex and marriage has happened to the way when we look at all of scripture, that it seems like God wants sex and marriage to happen looking at the full context. So it's really two different things. So our question was, why was polygamy okay in the Old Testament? It wasn't actually. It wasn't okay. It was allowed for because God was doing a bigger thing than just fixing one um, particular area of sin in this culture. Another question I got, which I found really interesting, um, jumping way forward, out of scripture was why does the church hate Democrats and liberals? That was a question I got. And it's a really interesting question um, because a lot of the time that is how it's presented, even though there are plenty of Christian Democrats. We mentioned one several weeks ago when we had Caitlin Shesh on and she talked about uh, Michael Ware, who worked with the Obama administration, but he's a, de he's a devout Christian. Why does the church hate Democrats? Well, first of all, I don't actually think the church hates Democrats. Um, because there are plenty of Democrats in the church. There's plenty of Democrats in your church. If you don't know what their politics are and you go to a mostly mostly conservative church, you're probably a Democrat and they don't want to tell you. It's true. Uh, <laughs> um, 
but the there's kind of a question behind this question that I'm not even sure this person knew they were asking of like, why is there all this divisiveness within the church? And this is something I'm really passionate about because I'm really bothered by the divisiveness in the church because there are certain things that we, I guess, have to be divided on. For instance, if someone comes to me and says, I don't believe that Jesus is God and I don't actually think that he rose from the dead. Um, in fact, he was just a really good spiritual teacher, but I'm a Christian. I'm going to have to say, I don't think you're a Christian because that's a basic belief of Christianity. Like that's where, uh, you know, I think Jesus is a great moral teacher too, but he was more than that. Um, so we have to be divided on something like that. But then of like, well, let's just go back to the women teacher thing. I went to seminary. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Most of the people I went to school with are complementarian and don't believe that women should be preachers or at least not senior pastors. I disagree with them, but um, I still think they're Christians and I could still serve alongside many of these people, um, I guess, depending on their own comfort level. It doesn't have to be a divisive issue. It doesn't have to divide the church. It can be something that we agree to disagree on. But it seems like the church gets uh, picky over all kinds of different things, and it's so divisive, and we'll argue about anything, and suddenly we're not friends because of who we voted for. We're not friends because of we disagree on this one verse, and it's like the church just keeps splitting. And so how do we get to a place where the conservatives and liberals in the church are at each other's throats and just can't seem to agree? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give us a little bit of a history lesson, and I'm going to do it in a way that I'm afraid might come across as demeaning, but I don't want it to. I'm just trying to make it entertaining. So back in the day, we had the Enlightenment, which happened in the 17th and 18th century. And we had this rise of intellectualism and uh, I believe more of a skepticism around faith-based things. And we want to like know the facts, which I like. I, I like facts too. I guess in some ways we're all products of the Enlightenment. But then in the 19th, early 20th century, we have Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin finds these finches and he says, gee, these look evolved, which is what Christians often refer to as microevolution, which is a change within a species, which totally happens. These finches seem to have evolved. Perhaps we've all evolved from one common ancestor. And if that's true, then maybe we don't need God. This was a huge point that ended up dividing the church deeply. And I think even if we don't know this history, I think it is why we have this divisive atmosphere about us at times between conservative and liberals. I think it goes back probably further, at least the Enlightenment, at least the Charles Darwin, probably further. But it goes back to this because the liberals said, okay, we like science. We like the Enlightenment. We like what you're saying here. We still think that God created it, but we're on board. Let's hear more about this whole evolution thing. And conservatives said, no, no way, absolutely not. This is not okay. If you're saying God doesn't exist, that means that everything you've done is nonsense and we don't want to listen to any of it. And you do have some people in the middle, but that's largely the divide that happened. And then you have this continued back and forth um, from when gay marriage started becoming more of a conversation, when abortion started becoming more of a conversation, and you just keep having this back and forth, and which is kind of where the idea of conservatives and I'm using this, gosh, so broadly, don't like science, don't trust science, um, and liberals love science, and they think science is the best thing ever. And this is kind of where this back and forth came from. And since the evangelical church typically has more of an orthodox view about scripture, about some of these core issues, and then this liberal theology came from it, which did, some liberal um, theology does 
stray from those core elements of Christianity, I think we got muddled. We have this theology that's getting muddled where it's like there's division where I guess maybe there should be between what's true and what's not true and those basic tenets of Christianity. And then we have these cultural things, which probably shouldn't be dividing us. We should be having conversations about, and it just got all confusing. And so it just got to a point where liberals don't trust uh, conservatives and conservatives don't trust liberals. And we don't even really know all this history and where it's coming from. We just know that we don't like them and they're wrong. And so we get this mix of like super important Christian issues, secondary, maybe moral issues, tertiary, which means third, tertiary issues. I think it means third, which, (laughs) yes, thank you, which are issues that we should be talking about, but really shouldn't be creating division like evolution. And we get all these things on, they're all muddled together. And all we know is that we don't trust that person. So that's a very, very brief overview of the past 200 years. And what I, I believe the church is so divided, it goes back to this whole conservative liberal label, and they've had other labels along the way. Um, And so why does the church hate Democrats? Well, I don't think the church does, but I think our more conservative Orthodox churches tend to also be conservative politically. And this history of distrust makes it to where, um, well, they don't trust them. And rather than having conversations, they they don't want to. They're just saying, well, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Uh, And it can create a feeling of the church hating Democrats and liberals. I just don't think that's I don't think that's true, but in the churches where it is, because I know it happens, um, we have this whole history that no one's talking about, it seems like, of a division. And so people who are Democrats and who are liberals can feel really ostracized from more Orthodox churches and feel like they don't belong. And that is really sad because I think we can learn a lot from our Democrat and liberal friends as people who are more on the conservative Republican side. Like We need to be having these conversations, especially in the church. Um, And so they can feel like they don't belong. And unfortunately, social media, adding on top of this, has just created more division. And so you share something about, um, I'll I'll see people share stuff that like refers to um, liberal ideology as the libs or the snowflakes or the dims or, and and just use really derogatory terms. And, And it's intended to be, you're not just shortening the word. You are being derogatory on purpose. Yeah, I don't think, I don't see how uh, libtard or things like that are in any way not intended to be derogatory. Right. And they're not only offensive to people who are special needs, which is where that whole place comes from. And that's not okay. Beyond politics, that's insulting to to people who are of the special needs community. And it's just, it's not okay. And unfortunately, these things are coming from Christians, which I guess also goes back to the fact that Christians are sinful people even still. And we as Christians need to do a serious check. Like, are we being those people who are intentionally being rude? I I know offensive. Like, I think some people in this camp enjoy being called offensive. Like, are you being rude? Are you being disrespectful? And going back to Jesus' command, are you being unloving? Because I don't think that our liberal and Democrat friends should feel ostracized from the church because they have different political opinions than us. I have strong feelings about that. I never know until I get on the podcast and then I start talking about it. And I'm like, oh, I care about that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, I want to do some more research personally into why we're at this place where we can't seem to even have civil conversations. Um, So maybe you'll see some more of that come out for me soon. But Um, or in the near future, far future, sometime in the future. But I think that 
that hatred and opposition we see comes from a lot of that history. And I, I, I'd hope that the more we understand that history, maybe the more we can move forward in a better way. So we're going to wrap up um, and we'll have some closing thoughts for us after our next segment break newsflash. This week for Newsflash, I want to tell you about something I think is super cool. Something that's been really useful for me in seminary and then in my personal studies. There is something called Logos Bible Software. And this is not a sponsorship. Um, I am an affiliate with them, but that was by my own choice because I think they're super awesome. I want to tell you why I think this is important. Logos has a lot of really amazing resources. You can buy stuff through their store. And then there's an app for your phone as well as for your computer where you can download it and you have access to so many incredible resources. Some of them you'll find for free. They even do like a free book of the month. Other ones you can get for cheap. They'll have sales on different books and it all goes into this one app and you can search. There's even some ways you can cross-reference and what I like about this one is that it's a good basic introduction. Not only is it a really good deal right now, it's just, it's basic. Um, And this podcast really is geared for people who are really wanting to begin studying Christianity, but you don't quite know how, like it's a apologetic simplified thing, wanting to keep it simple. This is really the perfect package for you. And that's why I want to tell you about it. So it's called Logos 8 Fundamentals, and you also get five bonus books. And so I'm looking at the link right now. You get the package itself for half off. Normally it's $100. Now it is 50 bucks. In addition to uh, everything that comes with that, the fundamentals, you also get five free books. A critical and exegetical commentary on Genesis, which is usually $38. It's free. The atonement and its relations to the covenant, the priesthood, and the intercession of our Lord, normally 10 bucks, it's zero. Studies in theology, normally 10 bucks, it's zero. How to study the Bible for the greatest profit, normally five bucks at zero, and Spurgeon commentary on First Peter, it's a Logos edition, normally $13 and it's zero. And so you get all of these things. I totaled it up because I was curious to see how much it all costs if you were to buy that just like a la carte and it would be $175.94. So you're saving $125.95. So I'm going to create a link on my website. It'll be leahchapman.org slash logos fundamentals and that'll link you directly to this page. You can click buy for $49.99 and you can either buy it for yourself or this would be like a super good Christmas present for somebody you know who loves the Bible, who doesn't already have logos Bible software. You can buy this for them And I know this would be an amazing gift. So if you have any questions about it, send me a DM. Again, yes, I am an affiliate. I will get some kickback from this, which would be great. Um, But really, I think this is an amazing package and I'm excited to share it with you. So hopefully this will be useful to some of you guys and you can take advantage of it. And we are back. Uh, We just covered a whole lot of material, a whole bunch of really tough questions that we answered pretty briefly. So, but... We hope you know that there are good answers to these questions. And if you have more questions, uh, well, let us know or you can do research. There's a ton of things that have been written on these. Now we're just going to close with some final thoughts. Something I want to say, it really goes hand in hand with some of the things we said last week of looking at scripture as the whole of scripture. Like what is the main thing being told here? And when you see these strange, obscure Bible verses, or you see instances of Christians throughout history not being very loving, not being very Christ-like. 
Like in the case of the obscure Bible verses, remember the context, when they were written, who they were written to. Just because it's in the Bible, it might not necessarily be applicable to you. And then, you know, in the case of people being, frankly, being bad examples, remember people, people are sinful. People are not inherently good. I know that's a big question. Are people good? Are people bad? Uh, we believe that we have a sin nature. We are bad. The only thing good in us uh, comes through God, comes through, comes through the Spirit, and you know the example that God set to us that we are trying every day to get better at. But remember, the church is made up of sinful, fallible people. And when you see examples of people being, well, I'd just say, you know, bad Christians, I'd even say people being bad people, remember, they're, they're sinful. And so are you, by the way. Yeah, and I guess to all of us who are sinful people, um, I want to close with some verses from Galatians because I feel like we've spent the whole podcast saying um, people are bad and people do bad things, but God is still good, and we need to get back to what God wants, which is a church that's focused on unity, um, on truth, and love, um, and let the secondary and tertiary things be those things but really be focused on being unified as Christians in Christ and being loving to everybody just because we're sinful people, just because the church has done bad things, but God is still God and the truth is still the truth doesn't give us any right to keep going in our sin and say, Oh, well, it's okay. Get Jesus saved me. And I think we know this, but sometimes we're blind to our own sin, especially the sins we enjoy. And so I want to read Galatians 5, 13 to you. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. And when we say flesh, guys, we don't mean like your body is bad or sinful. God created it. It's good. We're talking about flesh and like that sin nature is what that means. The Spirit and the flesh are in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh, again, the sin nature, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. Since we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So as people still living in this sinful world, we're going to see some of both the um, fruits of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit. But we should be allowing the Holy Spirit to cultivate us if we really are like a tree. Like we should be allowing the Holy Spirit to work on us, to prune us, uh, which I'm sure isn't very comfortable for the tree, to fertilize us with good things. And so those acts of the flesh that they described, those things 
we should be seeing on our tree less and less because that's not the kind of tree we are anymore. We tend to see like sexual immorality, debauchery, witchcraft. We're like, oh, I don't do any of those things. I'm good. But these hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy. Goodness, do I see that a lot in Christians. But instead, let's be people who are loving, who are joyful, peaceful, forbearing, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and who exercise self-control. That's what our tree is supposed to be full of. And so if our tree doesn't look like that, then we're not letting the Holy Spirit really work in our hearts and change us. Because we are going through, as Christians, a dramatic change from being a tree, so to speak, that is producing fruit that looks evil to being a tree that is good and fruitful and beautiful. And I mean, the church is the bride of Christ. We should be allowing the spirit to transform us. And so if you are seeing those ugly fruits on your tree, you need to do some praying and so that someone doesn't have to look back at your life and say, well, they weren't perfect, but um, that doesn't mean that Christianity isn't true. Somebody who looks back on your life and says they weren't perfect, but man, I could really tell what God was doing in their lives. And it's just amazing to see how God transformed them um, or see how God used them or what a kind person they were, how loving they were. Those are the kinds of things that uh, we hope that people will say about us. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you have any other questions, uh, follow-up questions or thoughts, you can follow us on social media and leave a comment or send us a DM. A direct message and uh, we'll be happy to chat with you on there. I love interacting with our listeners, so I would love it if you would connect with us on there. Until next time, thanks for listening and God bless. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Apologetic Simplified. Make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. You can learn more at leahchapman.org or you can also click donate to make a one-time gift or sign up for monthly giving on Patreon. Thank you so much for listening.